Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the architects of art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. I don't know if you know this about me or not, but I do a lot of traveling to places where they don't speak a lot of English or where English isn't spoken very well. The best example for me was China. I was on my way somewhere to, I guess it was Tiananmen Square, when I passed a hospital. It was a specialty hospital, as it turns out. And I knew this to be true because on the roof was a sign that spelled out everything in big yellow neon letters. It said, Dongda Hospital for Anus and Intestine Disease. What they actually meant to say was, hospital for proctology and and yeah it was corrected in time for the 2008 olympics anyway what i'm trying to say here is that being dropped into a situation where you don't speak the language or vice versa can be annoying intimidating and downright frightening which brings me to music if you're a fan there's nothing worse than finding yourself in the midst of a conversation where you don't know the language people are throwing around names and terms like you're supposed to know what's going on but you just don't and at that point what do you do you turtle you shut down the last thing you want to do is make yourself look stupid And at the same time, you somehow feel inadequate and you feel excluded. I guess if I were a real music fan, I would know what that jerk was talking about. And if that happens too many times, then you become intimidated and you don't ask for anyone to explain things to you. You end up perpetually in the dark and maybe your enjoyment of music, your involvement in music suffers. Well, I think that's just wrong. Let's see if we can't learn a few new terms so the next time Smarty Pants do to the party or that cooler-than-thou blogger starts dropping names and terms, you can keep up. Or better yet, maybe even expose that person as a snob and a fraud. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome to a non-threatening, non-judgmental, and very gentle mini-course in rock snobbery. I'm Alan Cross. The spectrum of engagement by music fans of music is very wide. On one end, you have the soccer mom 
who really only cares about songs that she can sing along to as she drives little Dakota from ballet class to swimming lessons in the minivan. If she buys any music at all, it's probably from Walmart or maybe from the counter at Starbucks. On the other end is the music obsessive, who spends far too much time online searching through obscure blogs and torrent sites in a never-ending effort to be among the first people to know about the next big thing, no matter how weird and how niche In between is everybody else, people who want to keep up with music, but actually have lives to attend to, so maybe some stuff falls through the cracks. Now, if you're listening to this show, that probably describes you. And I'm going to guess that you often run across terms and references that leave you baffled and feeling, uh, well, a little left out of the conversation. So let's try and fix that. A word that's being thrown around a lot these days is indie. Now, what exactly does indie mean? Well, if you live in North America, the answer is more complicated than you might think and requires a backstory. See, originally, indie was the British equivalent of the North American term alternative. Now, alternative dates back to at least 1980, a time when rock was really starting to fragment. Up until about 1977, there were only a few major types of popular music. You had pop, you had rock, you had country, and R&B. Yeah, there were subgenres and flavors of each, but everything could be grouped under one of those four headings. Then disco hits which created a series of schisms in both pop and R&B. At the same time, punk hit, tearing asunder the rock world. The big multinational record labels tended to stick with the kind of rock that could sell to vast audiences. Artists that made music that was a little more, uh, well, let's call it challenging, were rejected. But this music did have an audience. It's just that it was too small for the major multinational labels to care. These artists found homes with small regional record labels with names like Berserkly and Rounder. They provided an alternative home to the mainstream labels. Now, somewhere along the line, these companies began to be referred to as alternative labels, and therefore the music they released was also alternative. This word, alternative, eventually supplanted the term college rock, which was being used to describe the music that found favor with campus radio stations. Now, by the time we got to the grunge era of the early 90s, alternative was being used to describe a new generation of music that had descended from punk and new wave and not from Led Zeppelin and the Beatles. Didn't matter if it came from a major label or not. The word alternative described an aesthetic and a sensibility, not a point of record label origin. It also lost a lot of its countercultural significance, but that's a story for another day. Now, the UK music scene followed a similar path, except that they never took to the word alternative. Their word was indie, music that came from small record labels that were not owned by any of the major multinational companies. Even when we got to the 1990s, North America was all about being part of the alternative nation, and the major labels were jumping on the bandwagon, the Brits stuck with indie. Now, you might want to ask why. Well, partly because the Brits love their record charts. An official independent record chart had been part of the music culture since at least 1980. The progress and the popularity of indie artists was available on a weekly and widely publicized basis. Then, in 1986, as part of a way to set itself apart from a huge array of other music publications, the New Musical Express bundled a free cassette with an issue. They called that cassette C86, and it featured 22 independent bands of the day. And that cassette proved to be immensely popular and influential. But this cassette also intensified a war within the British music media. 
every publication got deeper into discovering new music, championing new music, and then destroying the bands as quickly as they had raised them up. The indie scene became the major source for content for these papers and these magazines. Now here's an example from the C86 compilation. These are the Mighty Lemon Drops. Think I'm going up again, hear the angels call. Think I'm going up again, catch me when I The Mighty Lemon Drops with Happy Head. That's a track from the hugely influential C86 cassette compilation from 1986. Now, by the 1990s, indie culture was deeply entrenched across the UK. The Manchester scene was a big part of that, thanks to labels like Factory. Then came Britpop, which really thrust indie bands into the mainstream. And today, much of the British rock scene is dominated by independent labels like uh, Domino and Cooking Vinyl and Go Discs, Rough Trade, XL Recording, and dozens and dozens more. So you got all that? Well, we still haven't answered the original question. What does indie mean today in North America? Well, essentially, it means any music from artists who work within an expanding network of record labels that aren't associated with the four remaining major labels. But like the term alternative, indie has also become associated with a certain aesthetic and sensibility. And to some people, indie is a sound. And it doesn't matter where it originates. To them, indie can even come from a major label. Further blurring the lines is that many independent record labels have struck distribution deals with the majors. For a piece of the action, the majors help the indies get their product into stores. The indies are still independent, but they get help from the multinationals. And then there are those artists who fight to stay away from all this. They want to keep their original underground cred and find alternate ways of promoting themselves and distributing their music. Things like uh, blogs and MySpace and Facebook and YouTube and SoundCloud and Bandcamp. So you see there's this huge gulf about what constitutes an indie band in North America. And there are often big fights over who's indie and who's not. It all depends on your perspective. Now, this band is definitely indie. They record for Merge Records, an independent label set up in Durham, North Carolina, by a couple of members of a 90s indie band called Super Chunk. Their biggest success? Well, these guys, the Arcade Fire. The Arcade Fire with We Used to Wait from their 2010 album, The Suburbs. They're probably the best-known indie band in the world right now. And I hope the definitions of indie and alternative are a little more clear. Well, as clear as they can be anyway. Let's move on to another set of terms. And I want to talk about any genre that has the word post as a prefix. I mean, we've got post-punk, post-metal, post-hardcore. What the hell does that mean? Well, it means a sound and scene that's a close descendant of another sound and scene. In the case of post-punk, for example, the term is used to describe a band or a sound which isn't punk rock, but listening to them, you could tell that punk had happened. That sound, that band, that song could not have happened without punk coming first. Same thing in the case of post-hardcore. It's a band with a sound that could have not existed had it not been preceded and influenced by hardcore punk. The DNA is similar, but evolved. Post-metal, same deal. It's a way of describing a band who has taken metal to some kind of a next level. In other words, you can put post in front of just about any genre to describe a band's sound that's at least once removed from the sound before it. 
Of these terms, the oldest is post-punk. And as far as anybody can tell, the first time it was used in print was in a British magazine called Sounds in 1977. The writer used the term to describe a new group called Susie and the Banshees. They weren't punk rock, but they couldn't have existed without it. If we use that as our yardstick, this could be the very first post-punk single. It's Susie and the Banshees with Hong Kong Garden. Susie and the Banshees with their very first single, Hong Kong Garden. They will forever be associated with the term post-punk. In a moment, we'll move on to some other words and phrases that'll help you navigate the musical hipsters and other music insiders' vocabulary. For example, we hear a lot of talk about 360 deals. What's that all about? An explanation is next. This is another program where we try to demystify some of the music speak that shows up in magazines and blogs and in conversation with music hipsters. The goal is to help everyone join in on the conversation because anytime anyone can talk intelligently about music, it's good, right? A phrase we've been hearing a lot over the last few years is the 360 deal. Now, what is a 360 deal? This is the favorite business model in the record business these days. It used to be that when a band signed to a label, they split the revenues on music sales at some negotiated level. The band was then free to make more money by touring and selling things like t-shirts. Today, though, with CD sales falling and digital sales not filling the gap, the record label is looking for ways to cover the shortfall. Bands are now being asked to sign a multi-rights deal, whereby the record company gets a piece of the action for everything. Merch, touring, ringtones, songwriting royalties, video game placement, the works, or as close to the works as they can negotiate. The thinking is that if a label is going to invest in a very risky venture, I mean, discovering and developing and marketing new musical talent is not the easiest thing to do, why shouldn't they get a bigger share of the success? But lest you think that this is just a huge money grab, consider this. The artist usually gets a bunch of stuff in exchange more security because the label now has a stake in everything the band does, so it's in the label's best interest for them to do whatever they can on as many different levels as possible to make the artist successful. That can include things like subsidies for touring. And they get more time to develop because the label's investment is long-term. And in some cases, the artist gets a whole lot more money up front, forcing the record label to work hard to recoup that money over a specified number of years. You with me so far? Here's an example of a young band who signed a 360 deal. Paramore is from a tiny town in Tennessee. They were originally signed to a label called Fueled by Ramen, who struck a deal with Atlantic Records, which is owned by the Warner Music Group, which is one of the major labels. Their deal was very 360. They got things like new gear and a new van, and money also went to the mother of singer Haley Williams. See, Haley was still in high school when the band started to take off, and the money to her mom was used to continue Haley's schooling while she was on the road. Paramore developed slowly, away from the mainstream, and by the time the dust cleared from their third album, they were selling records by the millions. It's an example of a 360 deal that worked for everybody. Uh, at least until the band blew up. Castle, 
Paramore and Brick by Boring Brick from their 2009 album Brand New Eyes. That's the product of a successful 360 deal, or at least one sort of 360 deal. There's another kind, and they only go to superstar acts. In 2007, Madonna signed a deal with Live Nation, the promoter. In exchange for a share of her touring revenue for 10 years, she got from Live Nation a guaranteed $120 million over that time. Meanwhile, Madonna gets to keep all the money from her music sales, but she did have to commit to releasing no fewer than three albums of brand new music over those 10 years and then touring behind them. Jay-Z has a similar deal, which guarantees him $150 million over 10 years. And U2 has a 12-year deal with Live Nation involving their touring, their merchandising, and their digital and branding rights. No one knows how much it's worth, but it has to be well into the $100 million range. And like Madonna, they don't have to share any of the money they make for their music. They just have to make albums and tour. You two, members of a special section of the 360 Club, which relates to their deal with Live Nation and not their 360 Tour, of course. That just confuses things. Coming up next, more music speak detangled. For example, what does it mean when a record gets mastered? Welcome back. I'm Alan Cross, and we're trying to sort through the vocabulary used by music hipsters. I figure if we all speak the same language, we can all participate, right? We often hear about a recording being mastered and then remastered. What does that mean exactly? Well, when a band goes into a studio to record some songs, the final result is sent somewhere else to receive a final bit of polish before the music is transferred to CD or a digital file or whatever else that somebody can buy. This polished up final version is the version from which all copies of the recording will be made in the future. It is the master recording. This means it's absolutely critical to tune the recording so it sounds the best it possibly can sound. Much money is spent on mastering engineers, the people with golden ears and super high-end studio equipment who know how to make a recording so it sounds its absolute best. Minor flaws are edited out. Any hiss is reduced as much as possible. All the songs are set up so they're the same volume. The stereo image is adjusted for maximum effect. High frequencies are sweetened and the bass is tweaked. Now, let me give you an example. When Nirvana recorded the Nevermind album with producer Butch Vig, they came out of the studio with a very raw, punk rock-sounding record. They tried to mix it into something that sounded good, but they couldn't get it right. It was then suggested that Nevermind be mastered by someone else. Kurt Cobain picked a guy named Andy Wallace, who, at the time, was well-known for the sound he was able to get from Slayer. Wallace touched up the guitars, giving them more of a sparkly edge. The vocals were brought forward in the mix, and the drums were made bigger and heavier. That version of the album was then sent to a special mastering studio in Hollywood, where a guy named Howie Weinberg gave it a very fine-tooth once-over. Once he was finished, Nevermind was done and ready to be pressed onto CD at manufacturing plants all over the world. And, well, we all know how that turned out, right? Now that you know what was done to the record, listen to this song with new ears. Note the crispness of the cymbals. Note the bigness of the drums and the equalization, the tone controls on Kurt's voice that allows it to cut through. That's good mastering. Nirvana, and come as you are from Nevermind. 
After the record came out, the band famously dissed the final master as being too slick. The truth is, though, they liked it and they approved its release. So that's mastering. What about remastering? Well, it's just like it sounds. You go back to an old recording, an old master recording, and try to polish it up some more and give it new life. A great example is Pretty Hate Machine from Nine Inch Nails. It was recorded in England in 1989. Trent had limited time, a limited budget, and a limited knowledge of how to use a recording studio. I mean, after all, he was just 24 years old. And although studio technology was good in 1989, it was nowhere near as good in 2010. Now, Pretty Hate Machine sounded good in its day, but not so good in the 21st century. Trent wanted a second chance at finishing up this record, but through a series of weird and complicated legal issues, he didn't have access to the original master recordings. This is a major reason why Pretty Hate Machine was out of print for years and years, all these legal hassles. But that changed in March of 2010, when the rights to the master recording were acquired by a company called the Bicycle Music Company. They allowed Trent access to these masters so he could remaster them. If you put the two versions of Pretty Hate Machine side by side, the improvements are very clear. The vocals are further forward in the mix. There's greater clarity to the arrangements. Instruments like piano seem brighter and more clear. And any hiss from those original tapes is pretty much non-existent. You might not be able to tell listening like this, but take it from me. This is one sweet remastering job. Remastered Nine Inch Nails. Again, I don't know if you can hear all the subtleties listening like this over the radio or online, but trust me, as someone who has listened to the original version a million times, this remaster sounds way better. It's an excellent reason to buy the CD again, even if you already have it. Keep in mind, though, that not all remasters improve on the original, especially if the people behind it are under orders to make the CD louder. If that's the case, they apply additional compression, which then just completely screws up the dynamic range of the music, and, well, I think you end up with a mess. So, buyer beware. I hope this helps. Again, I'm a big believer in everybody being able to talk knowledgeably about music. The key is understanding the language. That way, you participate more, which should mean that your overall enjoyment of music should go up. Tactical production for all this, including any remastering that's required, is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Cotex. And I have two of the hosts of Art Cotex with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first and explain exactly what you guys will be doing? And obviously, here's a hint. If you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about it's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these, these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet 
that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects to sit down and hear their stories, their come ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet. Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains, Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now, now now you're just bragging. Corn, <laughs> <laughs> John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey, and and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like like late '90s to now, it's still relevant. You know, like we broke our our production company fella with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Popstar. So it's 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 been a crazy journey, and um, there were two kids from Brampton, Ontario, that uh, went out to you know make art that broke out to the world, and now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay, how are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video; now it's going to be only audio. So uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean. We're talking to the creator, so it's a different kind of thing, you know what I mean? Um, the, the story is the story of the maker, so it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our of the show was with Dave Myers, um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time, and just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done. And, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about Black Lives Matter uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moments. And and a lot of times, to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what what went into to make that product and, and that, that piece of art as far as the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much, we're, we're, we're giving them that kind of, you know, close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line. Right. Because I've, I've always, I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? <laughs> what kind of headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things? Uh, and, and I have no idea. 
Yeah, it's it's and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up, I came up in the 80s era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos, right? The MTV much music era, watching videos by like Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and and Michael Jackson and uh uh and Aerosmith. And I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got, that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the Hungry Like a Wolf video. Like what the hell compelled you guys to be in this jungle and, and, and just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their, the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the Stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And, and before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at Architects Pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Art Catex with Karina Evans, Tash Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.